correct. As a living human being, we will always have a sense of self. However, through our regular practice of meditation, contemplation, body awareness, etc., we experience non-self, which results in our being able to live in a peaceful, non-reactive way. Well, a little bit like that, <laughs> not quite. The uh, practice that is mentioned here, these are the methods of seeing things as they really are. But having seen them as they really are, then we have to let go of our clinging to the way we thought they are. So we, um, the regular practice of meditation, contemplation, body awareness, um, one doesn't really experience the non-self yet. One, has, one gets a different view of things. And as the meditation, particularly in the higher jhanas, we have moments where we experience it, but the basic and fundamental way of uh, actually experiencing non-self is what is called path and fruit. And that's got to be done um, by, well, it's a very uh, concentrated moment and it has to be done by letting go of all aspects that we could possibly think of who we are. So these are the ways of getting there, but it's not got there. One hasn't got there, but it's a way of getting there, okay? And even that, even th that's quite true. This understanding results in a more peaceful and non-reactive way. That's quite true, the understanding. But it doesn't get to the non-self yet. But one has to do all these methods. If we don't do the methods, uh, we just talk about non-self, nothing will happen. One has to do the methods. Is mind door adverting the same as the Tucker initial application? Mind door adverting. Kind of funny words of that. Mind door adverting. It could be, I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know what mind door adverting means. I know what the Tucker means. It's initial application. Mind do I threaten? It's some sort of Abhidhamma expression, I dare say, but I have no idea what it means. Mind do I threaten? Don't know. In calm meditation, my observer seems to keep hanging around in the background, monitoring the experience. I don't seem to be able to drop it. Do you have any suggestions? Um, that probably means that there is a um, a stream of um, verbalization. Does that mean that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, uh, that's what I thought it meant. Yes. Um, That means that the calm is very um, short-lived only. Yeah. And then it tells something and then it goes again. Um, 
comes and goes as uh, the comes. Yes. Yes, it would at that. Um, actually, when when you do have the calm, what it needs is just a little more determination, not result thinking, but determination, which is willpower, to stay in that way. Now, in the very first jhana, the mind does tell stories. It always does. And in the way to it, it also does. But when there is already the, uh, a feeling of calm, just to give that, give the mind a bit of a push from behind, a sort of, sort of, sort of say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Let's try that. <laughs> Some scholars have written that Lord Buddha must have experienced the first past moment before he renounced his family and kingdom. In fact, the depth of his insight following the sight of disease, decay and death must have prompted the past moment and his renunciation. Is this a reasonable proposition? Um, it's conjecture. It doesn't say so in the scriptures. It's possible. But um, what most scholars say is that he's had 500 lifetimes to practice. So in those 500 lifetimes to practice, and he, in 500 lifetimes where he had made up his mind to become the next Buddha, because when he was, uh, when the Buddha... Uh, Dipankara was available that was 500 lifetimes before this Buddha Uh, this Buddha was called uh, the Somedo and he made a a, a determination to become the next Buddha so what most scholars say is that in those 500 lifetimes uh, he had enough time to practice so that immediately when he saw decay, disease and death he knew he had to go into the forest and find the answer to that and it seems to me um, quite a reasonable conjecture also Um, on the other hand neither the one nor the other are going to help us to become enlightened so but this is what mostly is said I very much value the opportunity to seek personal guidance and inspiration from you as a teacher whenever you are here in Australia However, when you are not here, is there any problem with seeking the same from other teachers? Often the approach to practice will be different, but geared towards the same goal. Yes, well, the goal is always enlightenment, and um, there's no, no reason why one shouldn't try to get uh, teaching from uh, other teachers. I think it's m- best to stay in the same tradition because in other traditions there are other priorities and uh, I have noticed over and over again that the people who switch traditions are, are confused with what they should be doing I don't know exactly what to do because they were told to do one thing and then they are told to do another thing and uh, then they don't know which one to do and then they try to do both and that doesn't work either 
So I would say one should stay with the same tradition and then it's okay, it's better. Sometimes I like my wandering mind being lost in thought. It takes me into unexplored realms and can be very creative, even productive. Wouldn't controlling the mind reduce or limit the imagination and natural creative flow? Or does the mind through meditation become creativity itself? And if so, does one then cease to be creatively active or have no need to be creative? Well, uh, the reason one likes to be lost in the, in the thought of the wandering mind is because it's pleasant. There's nothing unpleasant about it, unless one thinks of some horrible things. But if one thinks of some nice things, it's very pleasant. Um, particularly if the mind starts being uh, fuzzy and woozy, and then it feels sort of uh, uh, very, very pleasant and uh, is not at all productive. Um, if it should become very productive and creative, the only way it can be productive and creative is if it sees impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, or non-self. Uh, if it starts m- uh, painting pictures or creating music, uh, one better does that out of meditation. In meditation, it can only be creative and productive if it sees things as it really as they really are. That's the only way to be to be there. Um, the wandering mind is a discursive mind, and we're used to it. We have lived with it for decades, for many lifetimes. It's a natural way for the mind to be, and uh, it dreams up uh, stories. It's like, um, it's almost like reading fairy tales. So fairy tales are right. If you want to write fairy tales, it's okay, but not during meditation, after the meditation. Then controlling the mind, reduce or limit the imagination and natural creative flow. Well, uh, what one tries to do when one learns to meditate and learns the Buddha's teaching, one is trying to transcend uh, the human foibles, and that uh, which means natural, whatever is natural, we try to transcend that because natural are our instincts and impulses. That's that's what's natural. Um, creative. I don't know what creative means. Does it mean painting pictures, or does it mean uh, dr- uh, making music, or what? Painting pictures. Well, not during meditation. Afterwards, um, everything at its time. When, when there's time to paint a picture, paint a picture. Or when it's time to um, meditate, meditate. I have a number of students who are um, quite renowned painters. Um, very, um, one in particular comes to mind in Germany. She has quite large exhibitions. And uh, when she paints, it is very meditative painting but not when she's meditating, when she's painting. Uh, so it keeps the two things apart. And uh, her pictures are very um, sought after and well paid for because they are different from other people. She has been meditating for quite a long time. 
the mind which is able to be controlled means a mind that can be one-pointed that doesn't have to go into a discursiveness into wandering into being lost being lost in thought means it's lost lost it why lose that which is the most valuable aspect of us a controlled mind means a mind that can actually think what it wants to think and a mind that one thinks what it wants to think would never voluntarily get unhappy be absurd so a mind that is controlled doesn't get unhappy well I've, I've answered that already that one doesn't cease to be creatively active on the contrary um, a creativity Creativity is greatly enhanced through a mind that can do exactly what it wants to do. Could you say something about the ascetic practices to Tanga, like having one meal a day, living under a tree, living in a cemetery, maintaining only three postures? Are they part of the middle way or are they a deviation from it? Well, they're usually only um, useful for people who are monks uh, monks or nuns they don't live under trees usually nuns it's not part of their thing and maintaining only three postures well, these are extremes um, and only for a very short time they're only um, uh, and only one of them at a time never all of them only one at a time and uh, only short time and only if there is if one doesn't live in a household if you live in a household you don't want to live under a tree and not in a cemetery either and I think here in Australia they see to it that you don't live in a cemetery <laughs> I don't think they'd go for that would they why did the Buddha have his last meal even though he knew he would die from food poisoning after eating it if I remember correctly it caused the person who offered the food a great deal of distress Yes, it did, but why he did it, I wouldn't have a clue. It doesn't say so in the, um, uh, in the scriptures. The only thing it says is not to blame that person, but to say, to tell him that because he had very good intention, uh, it was good karma. None of these things are going to help you to get enlightened. None of them. And that's all what this is all about. In the same way... our parents there's a word there that I don't read in the same way we choose our parents for the lessons they teach us and vice versa do we choose our life's path for its lessons and what we are able to teach what we are able to teach and is it the observer or the higher self that does this well the higher self is a, uh, is a myth nobody's ever found it yet so if you're interested in the higher self, go look for it. In the Puttapada Sutta, the Buddha says it's, um, uh, he has some Brahmins 
they talk about it and he asks them whether they've ever found it. Of course, they have to say no. It's uh, the same myth that, uh, like paradise. Um, do we choose our life's path? Yes, well, of course, we have a free choice. Some of it is karmically um, geared, but we do have free choice. And uh, in our life's path, we do, if we use it as a learning situation, then we're using it properly. It's neither the observer nor the higher self. The higher self is, is as I said, is a myth. It's the mind that uh, makes the choices. Just the mind, mental formation that makes the choices. <laughs> and does the Buddha ever discuss or deny the existence of soul, or is this another New Age myth? Well, he actually does um, not use the word. Well, he does. He's asking these Brahmins whether they have ever found the soul, because the Brahmins believe in it, and they, of course, have to say no. Um, but the word citta in Pali, C-I-T-T-A, actually embodies everything that we uh, carry within. We translate it as mind, or sometimes we translate it as heart. It doesn't matter. Either one's correct. Um, but the word soul is loaded uh, with misunderstanding because people believe that that's a good part of themselves and then they don't think that they can't find the bad part or they think well the bad part's the devil and the devil is, uh, is, is his uh, doing or something of that nature the soul is always connected to being good but chitta is not connected to being good chitta is connected to having six roots three good ones and three bad ones so um, uh, the word soul is uh, not used other than by the Buddha to inquire from these Brahmins whether they've ever found it. So, um, and if we think of it as the good part in us, of course, we, uh, and the one that's going to, you know, live forever after in paradise, that's all wishful thinking. Eh? Is the key difference between people on different levels of the super-mundane path, the stream enter, once return, and non-return, and arahant, the maturation of insight? By maturation of insight, I mean the deepening of the understanding of experience. Um, well, it goes hand in hand the maturing of insight goes hand in hand with being able to let go more. The difference between a stream enterer, for instance, and a non-returner is enormous because the non-returner has been able to let go of greed and hate, whereas the stream enterer hasn't done a thing of that sort. So actually, the uh, deeper insight that one gains on the path makes it possible to let go more of more fetters 
morph those things that bind us and therefore do the next step. So it's not just the deepening of the understanding of experience. Okay? All right? During yesterday's meditation, I had a very disturbing vision. A giant moth on my heart, followed last night by a bad dream of angry fighting with someone. This raises disturbing afterthoughts and reflections which seem to come from a deep place and are very hard to just drop. I've tried loving kindness, but I'm feeling a bit trapped in an unpleasant cycle of thoughts. Any suggestions how to deal with this? Well, I think in today's talk I made the suggestion that to just drop is very difficult. To substitute, which you have also tried, hasn't worked so well. Um, so now, get the mind somewhere entirely different. Think of some wonderful thing that has happened to you or some wonderful thing that you have experienced through the senses and just stay with that long enough to, to calm the mind and then the whole thing is, disappears I mean because that's all um, they all um, we want a bad dream and uh, the others are putting one's mind in the wrong places huh? disturbing afterthoughts and reflections uh, probably trying to figure out why I was I fighting with someone doesn't matter it doesn't matter. It's one of the six roots. Just leave it go. Go to any of the nice things that have ever happened in your life and just forget about all this. Wherever we put our mind, that's what we know. And we don't have to know disturbing thoughts. Not necessary. Why do we have to be disturbed? Does the law of karma mean that people always get what they deserve? Is that what is meant by the saying, beings rise and fall in accordance with their own karma? Yes, they always get what they deserve. But we can't um, see that so clearly. Because uh, very often uh, people say, well, I don't know, I know these really nice people down the street and they're really lovely people and they have one mishap after another or we know somebody who is really nasty and seems to have only success and we can't understand why that is so well the Buddha explained that quite clearly he said when two people do the same thing it's not the same thing he gave a simile he said when if you put a teaspoon of salt into a cup of water that cup of water becomes undrinkable but if you put a teaspoon of salt and to the Ganges River, it doesn't make any difference to the river at all. So if you've got a river full of good karma and you put a teaspoon of bad karma in, it makes no difference. But if you've only got a cup full of good karma and you put one teaspoon of bad karma in, it becomes awful. So they do get what they deserve, but we don't know what they deserve. We have no idea. And it's not necessary for us to know. If they have mishaps, we need compassion. And if they have good things happening to them, we need sympathetic joy. It's very simple. It's just one is compassion, they're having awful things happening to them. 
On the other one, they're having good things happening, sympathetic joys. Very happy that the good things happen to them. They do get what they deserve, but we don't know how that works. We, we don't even know how it works in our own life, never mind the people down the street. <laughs> Sometimes when coming out of meditation, I become aware of tingling in my hands and feet and a feeling of pressure at the crown of my head. What is this? Well, if you become aware of the tingling in your hands and feet during meditation, that would be better than when you come out. If you come out, if you become aware of it during meditation, is it pleasant? Very? Yeah, but still pleasant. So if you become aware of that during meditation, you put your attention on it. Not on the breath, but on the tingling. And not on the hands and feet, but on the tingling. And then try to get the tingling spread over the whole body. The, uh, if you have pressure at the crown of the head, that's not pleasant. Um, with, crown of, with crown of the head, you mean here? Back or front? A little more to the front, no? Back there, okay. Well, let the pressure come out of that place. Just let it go out. And you let do that five, six, seven times until the pressure is gone. And that's not useful. But if the tingling is there in the meditation, it can be your entry into the first meditative absorption. And uh, try to spread it. And don't wait till you finish with the meditation. Okay? All right, anything else? Yes. Well, I don't know why one should become indecisive about that. If we look at people's needs and we want to be helpful, we're just being helpful. <laughs> I think the indecision arises because one can't decide between one's, one's own wishes, one's own desires, gratifying one's own desires, and the actual needs and the helpfulness that one could extend to others. That's where the indecision comes in. And what one should decide, well, it's obvious, isn't it? That one should decide to be helpful to others, even if it's uh, not exactly what oneself would like to do. Because it's neither comfortable nor pleasant nor anything like that. But means work. And the other person wants you to be somewhere else, or what? Maybe. <laughs> well, try, one has to try and explain, you know. And uh, if another person does not support the Dhamma practice, then that other person 
cannot be considered to be a noble friend. A noble friend always supports one's Dhamma practice in every which way, always. That's a feature of being a noble friend. So, obviously, that doesn't mean that one now has to um, be angry at that person. One can try and be as loving as possible, but one can realize that the nobility of that particular aspect is lacking. Uh, it's okay. Most people lack it. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe it's a, a guru who comes out of nowhere that's very friendly to me, but brings out about their authenticity. How, how can you support their good intentions in following a spiritual path at the same time as being treated just as silent about your own doubts? If the other person is very c- uh, clear about it, that this is what they want to do, I wouldn't um, utter any doubts. If the other person has doubts him or herself, I would discuss it, certainly. It's a matter, it's a topic then. But if the other person is totally clear, that's not a topic. It can only lead to the end of friendship. So uh, sympathetic joy with anything that they get out of this path, um, even if the guru is mistaken, it's not uncommon, although the Buddha was very adamant about it, that wrong teaching is a great danger, but it's not uncommon that people do get something out of uh, the teaching that um, is uh, questionable. They get some um, peacefulness, they get some direction, they get something out of it. In the Buddha's time, there were a lot of uh, teachers, just like what we have nowadays, that taught wrong doctrines. And he made no bones about it. He said it was stupid, quite plainly. And uh, I was just reading the Potapada Sutta, and he says it's stupid. And um, the thing that he warns against is that a person who believes in the wrong teaching may be totally misled. But if it's not that bad, I mean, these were teachers that were doing really totally wrong thing. They said there was no karma and that type of thing. Um, if it's not that bad, but if the person is learning some meditation and if there's morality included, moral behavior, it's okay as long as moral behavior is included. If moral behavior is not included, then it's very dicey, very dicey. But if that person behaves morally all right, even if her friends don't, but if she does, or he, it's okay. If they want to discuss it, then it's a topic, you know. But if they don't want to discuss it, it's better left alone. can invite you can what well, I suppose one could invite them to take a look at what you yourself are are doing if they're open for that but if they're not open it's best to let it go there were just as many wrong gurus in the Buddhist time 
I say, oh no, nothing has changed. Must be fun to be a guru, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Seems to be very popular. Ignorance, avijja, in the twelfth link chain of dependent origination is usually defined as ignorance of the Four Noble Truths or ignorance of the fact that the self is an illusion. However, in the description of the ten fetters, the wrong view of self is the first fetter and ignorance is the tenth fetter. Could you please explain what ignorance in the ten fetters means? I don't know if everybody understands even the question. (laughs) I need a bit of um, Buddhist terminology for that. Um, The 12-point dependent origination is the um, um, cause and effect chain which the Buddha describes as starting out with ignorance and if we start out with ignorance, it's sort of in a circle and goes back to death and then starts out with ignorance again. And so it, in that case, it's quite right um, what Charles says, that it's the um, ignorance of the Four Noble Truths or the ignorance of the fact that the self is an illusion. That's what avijja is meant there, what ignorance means there. And then there are ten fetters. Now, the ten fetters are the ten things that the Buddha uh, enumerated which keep us in that uh, samsaric circle of ignorance going around to death and rebirth and again and again and again. These ten fetters keep us there. Now, these fetters, the first three, are removed when one has a first path and fruit moment. A path moment is a moment when there is what I call a still point, which means that it is similar to a jhanic uh, experience, but it doesn't have an experience. It is the moment when experience and experience become one and therefore one can say nothing about it because there's no, nobody there to tell anything about the past moment. However, it only lasts one mind moment. It's only one mind moment. Very quick. But then after that comes the fruit moment and the fruit moment is the one where um, the person who's had the past moment knows that something... Um, Tremendous has happened and feels total relief and release. And that has to happen four times before there's enlightenment. The first one is called stream entry. And we lose the first three fetters. And the first fetter which is being lost is the wrong view of self. A person who's had the first path moment can never look at self, again, at him or herself, 
as an entity again. However, such a person does not feel that. They get going in daily life and they feel they know exactly who gets up in the morning just like we've always done and they know exactly what's the matter with them and they think it's me that something is the matter and they have to put their mind on the experience of the no-self which they realize in the fruit moment and the realization that they have had the right view in order to come back to it. In other words, the mind has to make a specific effort to know that right view. It's not natural or second nature yet. That's one of the three fetters that get lost in the stream entry. However, ignorance only gets lost in for the arahant. There are, there are five lower fetters and five higher fetters. The five lower fetters get lost until non-returner. That's one step before enlightenment. And the five higher fetters get lost only for the enlightened person, for enlightenment. And one of those five higher fetters is ignorance. And it means actually exactly that, that only then it is second nature, it is absolute natural, that such a person has no feeling of self at all. So the word ignorance is there used in a sense it's not no longer the ignoring of the Four Noble Truths or the ignoring of the self-illusion. It is the actual loss of that delusion which for the non-returner is still adhering to that person one says like the aroma clings to a flower. Very subtle, very faint, but it's there. That self-delusion. And so only for the arahant, that ignorance is gone. So I had to explain the question before explaining the answer. (laughs) Questions about the mechanics of enlightenment can be interesting because the Buddha has described enlightenment with such precision. I'm thinking about questions like, why does the past only last one moment, only last one mind moment? Why does the fruit that follows last either two or three mind moments? Would you say that trying to find the answer to such question is not useful in helping one achieve enlightenment? And then one should instead direct one's mind to the investigation of the three characteristics. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) No question about that. (laughs) Quite often, during the last day, I have noticed that my mind during meditation has been very flat and uninspired, like turning the key in a car's ignition and nothing happening. The mind's not dull, in fact, it's quite peaceful and observant, but it's not interested in the breath at all or the contemplations much. Could you please suggest what to do? Should I focus on the state of mind? I tried a recollection of the qualities of the Buddha, and this seemed to help. 
Yes, well, that's an unpleasant state of affairs, isn't it? Um, if the mind is flat and uninspired in the meditation, my guess would be that it's equally so out of meditation. Would that be true? Sure. Everything becomes more obvious in meditation. Uh, it's uh, everything that concerns us ourselves becomes far more obvious in meditation because we are not concerned with sense contacts. So, give yourself a Dhamma talk. <laughs> how can you? Insp- how have you ever inspired yourself in the past? Thinking about the Buddha. Okay, well, do that. Yeah. Think about uh, whatever you know about his life. You know, uh, have you read uh, his life story and all that? Okay. Um, so, think about his life, how he started out as um, apparently ordinary person, how he lived in luxury, which is exactly the way we live. We live in luxury and how he found that not to be conducive to his past because the sense desires were too much and that how he saw the um, old age disease and death and how that inspired him to go to the forest to uh, practice the meditation so think of your own decay, disease and death maybe that might inspire you to practice see how the Buddha did it, then see how he actually did not uh, approve of the ascetic ascetic practices, but that's the middle way, not luxury, not asceticism, but ordinary sleeping, eating, but practicing, and how he then decided out of compassion to teach others, and how this enormous compassion is to our benefit today because if that hadn't been there we wouldn't know what he had achieved and uh, how in the history of mankind one can say that not that he's the only enlightened person that's not true but how he is the only one that has given such exact guidelines and such exact um, methods for achieving enlightenment and uh, if you think of these things, can you visualize? Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, have you have you been to India to Bodhgaya? Uh, to any of the holy places? Lumbini, uh, not Kusinara. No. Okay. Well, visualize Lumbini and visualize the Buddha being born there. Of course, he wasn't enlightened then. So Lumbini is not so um, impressive as uh, Kusinara, where he died, where he was enlightened, and Bodhgaya. Um, But uh, think of him as as an ordinary uh, person and how he, through his own work, became uh, the the one that could guide us and all those things, all the awesome. If you do it outside of meditation, that's fine. But if you sit down and again you feel, I don't really want to do all this, do it in meditation also. You know, use it. It's uh, the the devotion and the admiration for the Buddha 
should actually also entail a feeling of uh, wanting to emulate the Buddha. So um, it's not only the Buddha who becomes enlightened. Anybody who does the whole path becomes enlightened. So you can say to yourself, well, why not me? I would. In fact, that's what happens, and it happens here in Australia. Um, I remember that very, very vividly. I was giving my very first meditation course on my own. I had before that helped um, my teacher, but I gave my very first meditation course on my own. And a chap whose name I have forgotten, um, who was a taxi driver in Sydney, uh, helped him arrange the course. He later became a monk and he dis- misbehaved and got thrown out. But that had nothing to do with <laughs> with this story. Uh, there he was in a monk, he was a taxi driver. And he f- um, uh, arranged my course. And then, for some reason, I, which I don't know why, we came to talking about teachers. And he said, well, all the time we have to uh, rely on these uh, achans, these teachers, to come from Asia and we have to pay their airfare and we have to get them over here and uh, then they can teach us. But why don't we become a chance? Why don't we do it? Mm. Well, if you've never fasted, the retreat is not the right time to start. If one's had a lot of experience with it and one knows exactly what one body is doing, what one's body is doing and how to um, uh, take care of it, it's not a bad idea. Uh, I have done it for years on end and uh, I did it because my body felt much lighter so when sitting down on the pillow I didn't feel this gravitational force and torpor and uh, felt much lighter and um, you know meditation in the beginning when you learn it if you can call it fasting of the mind and noble silence is fasting of the mind and the fasting of the body can support that but only if one knows what one is doing with fasting just to stop eating that's not fasting one has to know how to deal with one's body you know so those things I have um, um, are helpful and I felt that this was well I felt it helped me a great deal and I did it for years um, I haven't done it now since operation because the doctors all think I'm completely crazy and I don't want to I don't want to support that <laughs> yes hmm fear there's nothing to fear let it all go uh, when you have those uh, heart palpitations, you can't attend to the breath, can you? Mm. It's not a good thing to use as a meditation subject. Not at all. And... Uh, 
it's always associated with fear and uh, being afraid of the unknown you know well you don't know what's going to happen if you really meditate so something might happen to the me it's quite possible something might happen to the me but i can assure you after you come out of meditation it's right back where it started from it only sort of gives way during the meditation a little bit it gets shifted the me gets shifted out of the middle uh, the central position when we concentrate uh, and it will move right back into the central position the minute you open your eyes so there's nothing to be afraid of just to say and watch your breath you don't have to watch the breath um, you can do loving kindness meditation can you do it can you concentrate all right on that all right use it instead it doesn't have to be the breath these are all methods um, do you ever see color what color Mm, okay uh, what shape does it have yeah that's because the mind changes um, is it ever round mm. okay does it stay a while okay can you guess how long a while is no five minutes less okay well is it nice is it interesting yeah is it uh, you don't have heart palpitations then no okay you can try and use it um the color of it uh, itself doesn't matter whether it's blue or mauve it's, it's usually a um yeah between the two it's, it's all right it's fine it doesn't matter that it changes its shape yeah that does matter because the mind is not uh, solidified what you need to try and do try to see whether you can make it into a disc it will follow your your direction if the mind's strong enough make it into a disc and then try and make the disc bigger and bigger eventually it's so big that it will uh, cover you you can sit in it well try and bring it back bring it back um, it's just as, uh, another method you can see whether it's easier than on the breath and if it is use it it's called the kashina it's one of the 40 meditation methods that the buddha taught but i don't particularly uh, uh, teach it unless somebody is having trouble with the breath and has a um, spontaneous um, color so if you find it difficult with the, with the color with a disc well don't do it but the heart palpitation is fear yeah. yeah so you have to give yourself a pep talk there's nothing to fear i am already what i want to be so take a deep breath and do it over again <laughs> anything else This jhana is not calm. 
first jhana is a delightful sensation. Next one is joy. You have to be long enough in each one of them to get the results from that. The delightful sensation uh, and then the joy each have to be experienced long enough so that they are a cause for the next effect. And long enough is hard to say how long long enough is. In the joy, the emotion, the emotion. The first focus is the sensation and the second focus is the emotion. And the joy brings contentment. It's also an emotion. Actually, um, after the first, all the others are emotions. And sometimes we feel the emotion of joy very uh, in a specific place in the body. Uh, very often in the center here, here, or go there. But your attention is on the joy and not on the spot. Oh yes. You drop the breath before you get to the delightful sensation altogether and go to this. You only need to go back to the breath in order to get started again or when you lose the whole thing you have to start all over again. Then you might have to go. But otherwise, the breath is only a key. If you stick in the keyhole and open the door. Hmm? Anything else? Reflecting carefully, I use this food not for pleasure, not for indulgence, but only for maintaining this body so that it endures, for keeping it unharmed, for supporting life, so that former feelings of hunger are destroyed and new feelings from overeating do not arise. Then there will be for me a lack of bodily obstacles and living comfortably. Wish you a very nice meal and good meditation. And I had another thought that uh, possibly if you do have a discussion like that, uh, those of you who are fairly new at this might um, uh, gain some uh, more uh, inspiration or courage when those that have been doing it longer can tell you that uh, it just takes a little time, that type of thing, you know, sort of like a support system. Because, I mean... uh, I can tell you these things, but it's not quite the same as when somebody who's sitting with you tells you them. Right. Good. In order to get to a past moment, the mind has to let go completely. In order to let go completely, 
the mind has to see the three characteristics with great clarity. In order to do that, the investigation of the three characteristics has to be done when the mind is concentrated. That is why the investigation is best done after the jhanas. Is that a correct description of the steps leading to a past moment? Well, three characteristics, anicca dukkha impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, non-self. Um, past moment, I've already explained. Um, yes, that's fine, but we don't need all three. We can investigate one of them and see that with great clarity. Because if we understand impermanence, we understand the other two. If we understand dukkha, we understand the other two. And if we understand um, substancelessness, we understand the other two also. So either one of them will bring the understanding of all three. We don't have to look at all three. We can do so, but we can also choose which one, which one we like to look at. And it's usually said that a person that has a great deal of um, concentration likes to look at impermanence, the one that has a great deal of faith likes to look at dukkha, and the one that likes to analyze likes to look at the uh, non-self. But that too, of course, can change from one time to another. I've got A and B here. So, are there people who we would call, could call evil? It is, they've gone beyond all levels of confusion, dukkha, and are fixed in a highly destructive state. Hitler or serial killer would Buddha call them evil how should we respond to such people the Buddha would say that they are doing evil deeds um, they all have the um, uh, possibility the opportunity for redemption there's no doubt about it because everything is impermanent they don't have to stay that way to respond to them we don't, we certainly do not like the crime, but we don't have to hate the criminal. It's um, actually very sim- simple. Another response is to see in oneself how much destructiveness we all carry within and are actually restrained by shame and fear, which the Buddha calls the guardians of the world. And for instance, in war, those two guardians are totally uh, obliterated, and so we have chaos. And in the time of Hitler, it was they were disregarded. Those two guardians of the world, we have chaos. Why do you think that our culture has such an appetite and fascination for very violent movies with evil characters? Are they perhaps living out? Curiously, there are three negative roots, greed, hate, and ignorance, leaving to be nice people in real life. No, I don't think so. I don't think that that's what happens at all. I think that what I just said, that everybody has the violent, destructive streak, and um, they are living it out, certainly with all these movies, but that they're done, and then they're only nice in the real life, I don't believe that either. 
and they're just as violent and destructive as they've always been. Um, it's an extreme. It's just as much an extreme as fairy tales are an extreme, where always the good fairy wins and the bad fairy loses. I mean, these are all extremes, and then none of them are real. Very unfortunate that um, uh, we have such extremes. But if you show on television that which is only according to what really is everyday life, people find that most boring. They wouldn't, wouldn't turn it on. So they want to be shaken out of their boredom. Yes. I have heard that the Buddha discourages the development of supernormal powers because a great deal of effort is needed to develop them and this effort is better spent in trying to achieve enlightenment. That, as I understand it, is not to say that one should not attempt to gain mastery over the jhanas because I have read that concentration has to be perfected before the third past moment can be attained. Could you please comment? An avid reader, huh? <laughs> Charles reads everything that's available, apparently. Uh, the jhanas are not supernormal powers. The jhanas are normal powers. So obviously they should be developed, yes. Uh, the development of supernormal powers is a waste of time. Um, for an enlightened one uh, who can do the jhanas well, they come automatically. Uh, for one who can do the jhanas just a little bit, they might not come. But uh, supernormal powers uh, have nothing to do with jhanas. Jhanas are totally normal. And if one isn't enlightened, one should certainly use one's uh, energy and effort for that purpose and not for any powers. Uh, in our question following Tip's talk on Saturday, we discussed right speech in the context of choice of words and choice of time. Could you please remind us of the exact words of the Buddha concerning right speech and appropriate time to speak? Also, could you please put in writing the words for the daily contemplation on the food? Well, the last thing uh, it's on the tape. The contemplation on food is on this tape, on the question and answer tape. It's on that one. Um, so that's one thing. And the Buddha's words about right speech at the right time. Well, it's in a sutta um, that he gave on, um, on speech. And there are many things he says about speech. He says one thing, for instance, that one should learn the Dhamma in one's mother tongue. And he said one should neither exaggerate nor underrate, because both are lying. And um, the one thing that you are referring to that is said in that particular sutta, it's called the Exposition of Non-Conflict, that sutta, um, which means harmonious life, non-conflict. He says, if you know anything, that you want to tell another person that may be um, harmful and it's uh, 
untrue, don't say it. Or hurtful, not harmful, hurtful, sorry, not harmful. That could be hurtful and untrue, don't say it. Now, if it could be hurtful and true, don't say it. If you want to tell another person something that can be helpful and it's untrue, don't say it. And if you know something that could be helpful and it's true, find the right time. So it's helpful and hurtful. And this is a very important way of um, um, using one's speech because it takes away impulsiveness. Now, we want to tell other people how they should behave, obviously. I mean, everybody has that wish, huh? And uh, if we do that impulsively, it uh, usually doesn't come out right because we, would, we are telling them something that they should be doing different. And at that time, we probably don't have sufficient love and compassion. And so it comes out in the words, in the feeling of the words. The words might be alright, but the feeling behind the words might not be. And uh, we have no success whatsoever. On the contrary, there's only anger. There's no, um, uh, any kind of result other than that. So what we should do is, if we want to tell somebody that we think is going to be very helpful, to us personally probably, but maybe also to the other person, we should make quite sure that we have no negative feeling for that person at the time of speaking, but only uh, love and compassion. And that we also realize that we're trying to help ourselves also, not strictly put it on in, onto the other person's um, side, but say, for me, it feels like that. And if we speak out of uh, love and compassion, the other person has a much easier time listening to it and um, actually taking it in and possibly doing something with it. So the right time. Would you please describe some of the other meditation subjects that the Buddha taught besides breath? I am particularly interested in the casinos as I have had some experiences that I would like to understand and work with, which I think may be related. Well, <coughs> you better tell me what the experiences are, and then I can tell you whether they're related. sort of sensation. And and were you able to stay with that uh, uh, delightful sensation? And were were these all separate flowers or could you make it into one whole? Oh, I wouldn't know what ultraviolet looks like because we can't see that. <laughs> purple, okay, purple color. Um, that's fine. 
if it comes spontaneously like that you could also try to bring it up on purpose if you find that easier than watching the breath or do you find it easy to get into the first jhana with the breath no, no okay well try that instead okay and uh, you can try to do it on purpose and um, you can try and well try to bring up that one flower that's with that color and then make it bigger and bigger so big that you're totally covered by it and then to the sensation when the sensation is only 15 seconds try to get back to the sensation without um, re-establishing the color it's usually possible but if um, if it isn't then you have to re-establish the color first the color disc the word casino just means color disc you know and disc means actually traditionally the way it's done is you hang a disc on the wall in the color that you've chosen and then look at that and then you close your eyes and have it internalized but most people who meditate don't even need that they don't need to have that on the wall you know well, if you can think of a purple flower that's good enough you know you can be within that purple and then go from that to the sensation uh, the crux the, uh, of the matter is to be able to stay with the sensation uh, something like 10 or 15 minutes and if the mind falls off it to get back on it if the first jhana is not devoid of uh, uh, some distir- distracting thoughts but it should certainly last longer than 15 seconds okay so when you fall off it go back in it if you can't get the purple back and if it's easier than the breath use it and it doesn't have to be purple but if it is that's fine it uh, it can be any yeah it can be white it can be gold it can be um, any any color but not black all the bright color any any one of them will do yeah. mm. yes it's okay it's uh, not so much recommended but it's all right it's, uh, it's whatever happens spontaneously whatever happens from you know by itself anything else yeah are you leaving today yeah Well, you know, it's easier with children than it is with grown-ups. Our children have far more uh, ability, usually, uh, to accept things the way they are. Uh, grown-ups are the ones that uh, resist and reject. You know? um, I think if you have a situation like that, the words would come quite naturally. 
I don't think uh, it would be difficult. The, uh, the child does not have the ability to, uh, a fairly small one, to um, project into the future. So, uh, like for instance, your um, example of having lost an arm, they can't project into the future that that will be difficult for them now in the future. They only know that maybe they've got pain now. Sorry? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If they're worried about pain, well, they're trying to leave that, of course. And uh, if they do worry about the future, which is unlikely, um, most children don't, don't think that far. Um, they can think of Rita heads and they're five, but that's about it. You know? And they don't think years ahead. If they did, they wouldn't do what they were doing. <laughs> of course, it does, that doesn't follow, does it? We can think years ahead and still do silly things. <laughs> so that doesn't really follow. But yes, you, you respond to what they are putting out. Yeah. And that's, um, well, pain, I mean, can be relieved. And uh, the shock, mainly it's a shock. Has to be the one thing that one needs to tell them is that it's um, not something that was done, you know, on purpose or by any bad person. It was just, yeah, it was accidental. The word accident is difficult, so we have to explain that. And mainly take their mind off it, distract. For children, it's best to distract as much as possible. Yeah, that's much more difficult. That depends on what kind of underlying mood that person has. If they're negative anyway, there's very, very little hope of making them positive. But on the other hand, a thing like that can change a person. It can change them very much. You know, you can't open somebody's mind who doesn't want to have it opened. It's not possible. You know. If they want to have it open, sure. Yeah, you go right ahead, but if they don't want to, no way. So, um, uh, these sort of things can be a great turning point in somebody's life, for the good or for the bad. You know. so if, they're, if they're wide open, yeah, that's fine. You know. But it's not always the case. Anything else? To the statement? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The 50% are sense pleasures, and they are very short-lived, and you've got to get new ones, and that's dukkha. Watch every time, become aware every time you think, now I have no dukkha. What was it that created the no dukkha, the pleasure, and how long does it last? Look at it investigate 
because that will be I mean without that you don't really um, want to practice I mean why should anybody want to practice if they think that the world's okay why not just keep going in the world it's not always hot it's sometimes quite pleasant isn't it and sometimes one gets some appreciation from other people so why not uh, keep practicing all that so check it out only you can check it out well nature you mean trees and bushes and flowers and and that sort of thing yeah okay yeah it's very pretty um are they permanent no yes well uh, children are very pretty most little kids are very pretty what do we see when they're grown up so when the flower falls apart and um, um, will is it so pretty well, there you are sure it's necessary so, so dukkha is necessary that's right well the Buddha said the um, human realm is the best realm for gaining enlightenment because we have enough dukkha to make us do something about it and we have enough sukha which is the opposite of that so that we don't become totally depressed by all the dukkha so we do have a balance certainly to keep us a bit you know even but I would like to repeat please look at any moment that you don't have dukkha and check out according to your watch or whatever you have how long that lasts just check it exactly according to the clock and then check the mind looking for something else that will now provide the the pleasure check it out see it for yourself only you yourself can see it the um, the basics are decay, disease and death it's the basics but within all that there are so many emotional moments check out according to the clock how long does it last not having dukkha and what's my mind doing the next moment when it's, when it's there again what do I do and dukkha it does not mean that nature is ugly not at all and it doesn't mean that we can't have any sense pleasure it just means that we can't have fulfillment it's non-fulfillment mainly have a look and see whether that's true non-fulfillment and if you can't find that it's true well then maybe there's no need to meditate you know <laughs> yeah, but find yourself according to the clock yes if you don't like the dukkha yes but if you if you just look at it no anything that's done with equanimity doesn't create bad karma on the contrary if you do it if you look at it in order to gain insight that's your intention it's good karma but if you look at it and you dislike it 
That's bad karma. I dislike all this bad karma. It's the intention behind it. So now you could, of course, conceivably look at it in order to gain insight, and in reality you don't gain any insight, you just like it. So you've got on both good and bad karma. So good karma because you really wouldn't want to gain insight, and bad karma because you didn't, and uh, it's like the dukkha. But it's the intention that counts. Mm. <laughs> no, I wouldn't like to. No. It's not, um, it doesn't um, describe the grandeur of it. It's um, too um, um, mundane. No, enlightenment is super mundane. It goes beyond the mundane. Yes, the Buddha didn't describe it very much, but um, there are some descriptions, some descriptions, um, but it's super mundane. The jhanas are not. The jhanas are mundane, but enlightenment is super mundane. So the, that, those words are not um, sufficient. Mm-hmm. That she used? Yeah, peaceful energy. Yeah, not quite enough. <laughs> okay, we'll say our verse on food. I find that the effort of continually coming back to the breath, dropping the unwholesome, pulling myself back to the here and now, is quite tiring and I find I need to have a sleep during the day. Is this to be expected, or am I doing something wrong? Well, one would think that you don't usually have a sleep during the day in the other uh, activities. I always have a sleep during the day, ever since I turned 65. Um, Well, if one has full concentration, that is the rejuvenating factor, and then there is no tiredness. But seeing that it's not the case here, um, it's tiring. But I think I think there is something actually you are actually doing something wrong, and I would guess. I'm only guessing that what you're doing wrong is that you are thinking of results and that's very tiring. It because it creates a, um, a duality in the mind. On one end, the mind, on one side, the mind tries to become concentrated and on the other side, it wants to have something as a result, namely the concentration. So, and that is extremely tiring. It makes the mind really, um, well, it can make it so tired that uh, not even a sleep during the day will help. So, do you start your meditations with loving kindness for yourself? 
I would suggest that you start every meditation that you do, everything that you do, whatever it is, contemplation, meditation, walking, mindfulness, whatever you can think of, and all of it, that you start always with loving kindness for yourself. A feeling of being at the right place at the right time, contented uh, with yourself and your surroundings, grateful for the opportunity, whichever makes sense to you. We don't have to use all of them. Whatever you find is useful. Always start like that. And never blame yourself when whatever you're doing doesn't work properly. Never do that. That also is very tiring. Um, in fact, it's uh, counterproductive. Just let it happen, whatever it is. And then as you let it happen, you You've had the unwholesome thought, all right, so you have the unwholesome thought. Now you bring up a wholesome one. Um, I think there's too much um, uh, pressure, and that's what it is. The pressure makes tired, and so let uh, uh, loosen the pressure. <laughs> Do you know of any good similes for the four super-mundane paths and fruits? I know a simile for the attainment of paths and fruits given by Buddha Gosal, a person swinging from a rope attached to a tree from one side of a river to the other. That simile, I think, does not quite work for the four super-mundane paths and fruits because it suggests the person has to swing across four times and land four times before one is really on the other side. Exactly so. That's exactly it. One has to actually swing across four times and land four times before one is actually on the other side. Only, of course, if one has done it before, uh, one has the experience of doing it, maybe not quite so difficult, and the landing is easier. The first time when one lands, um, one could say, that one is wobbly because one hasn't done this before but uh, as one does it again and again it becomes easier but it's exactly it one has to do it four times and that's the only simile I know the one from the Visiting Mother would you say that the aim of insight meditation is to get the mind to see the world more and more from the point of view of absolute truth um, yes. Uh, does relative truth become for the fully enlightened one like a game which he or she doesn't take seriously but is compelled because of practical necessity to play along with? Uh, yes, quite so. Um, the Buddha also spoke in terms of relative truth by saying, I am doing this and you should do that, uh, I and you and... Uh, and it's best for you to follow the precepts and all that type of thing. He spoke on the level of relative truth, and then he also spoke on the level of absolute truth, where he talked about himself in the third person, called himself a Tathagata, and um, did, didn't ever use the word I, but he used it many times in other, uh, other discourses. So the fully enlightened one... Uh, not only like a game, uh, which isn't to be taken seriously, which is one part of it, but also 
enormous compassion because a person who's enlightened obviously can remember what it was like not to be enlightened and so the difference is so enormous that there is enormous compassion and uh, the compassion extends to all beings and is used as a vehicle now not everybody will be able to really connect to that vehicle so the Buddha in his compassion used those, uh, tried to teach those people who were interested so yes of course a person who is enlightened um, realizes that this is one tiny part of the whole what goes on in the world and uh, it's not the most important part but it's a part which is needed for survival um, physical survival as long as the body can do that can survive is there worth sorry is there worthwhile merit in trying to improve the world for example someone who tries to rid the world of a terrible disease or who tries to provide clean drinking water to a city or town and has as their something the welfare of all has as their motive the welfare of all is this marriage worthy even if there is no insight into the three characteristics yes absolutely meritorious uh, if the intention is that welfare of others is always meritorious whether there is an insight into the three characteristics or not and that meritorious work that somebody is doing makes a lot of good karma and making a lot of good karma helps again to um, clear the mind of a lot of its obstacles and inside is easier so yes it is very very meritorious to help people like me if you are able to provide clean drinking water or able uh, to provide um, uh, something like a vaccine or something like that yes it's very meritorious very helpful and of very good benefit to the person who's doing it could you please speak about the difference between contemplation and investigation of the Dhamma and when should we use investigation would you please lead our I lost it would you please lead our investigation during the retreat so we get a better understanding there's a word here I can't read John after investigation once more maybe no sometime <laughs> yeah that's right that's it sometime yes and um, well um, yes uh, why not I didn't have the time today or I didn't take the time today I thought I should get on with the uh, factors um, the difference between contemplation and investigation of the Dhammas is strictly this that the investigation of Dhammas is always either Anicca Dukkha or Nata now when you when we talked about contemplation we've done a lot of different things but we have also investigated Dukkha we've investigated